Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 80. This week we bring you two superb works of fantasy fiction from two very talented authors. We begin with The Wheel of Fortune by Steph Swainston. Steph has written tales set in the foreland since she was five years old. The novels she has published to date are collected in The Castle Omnibus. Her next book, Fair Rebel, will be published by Golance in 2016 and is available on Amazon. The Wheel of Fortune is part of that cycle and tells the story of Jan's early life as a mortal and how he received his trademark scar. It's read for you by Anthony Babington. Anthony is a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that this was not his idea. He can be found on Google+. And here we have it. The Wheel of Fortune by Steph Swainston Tuesday morning in May, bright sunshine. I came out of the shop, carrying a pole to pull the awning down. I was whistling. The shop door banged behind me and the cat fled off the step. The whole street was vibrant with the spring sun. There, sitting on the pavement and huddled against the terrace wall was Saren. She was a pitiful sight, gin-dimmed eyes and head to foot in gutter dirt. I had seen her last Saturday, on stage at the Campion Vaudeville, and she was wearing this same dress now, a voluminous costume made of gold foil. Her reddish wings stuck out the back and bunched up against the bricks. The feathers rustled when she moved. I knelt next to her. Saren, are you all right? She shook her head and looked away. She was on the spiral downwards, that much was obvious. What did they do to you? 
the things they make me do, she sobbed. I stroked her hair, the crackling material of her dress. Did you come here to see me? Yes, to buy some scolopendium. Cat, because people say you sell it. No. Yes, you do. You do. Not to you, Saren. You don't need it. I want to. I pulled her arm gently. Come inside. I'll get you a cocoa. It's better than cat. She looked at me gratefully, drawing a little consolation from my touch. Her hair was so ginger it looked fake and stiff as wire. Her green eyes would put Redan to shame, but her face was purple with dirt. It was a bizarre contrast. She began to wail. I hushed her and helped her inside the shop. It seemed dim after the daylight, and it took a second for my eyes to adjust. I flipped up the counter, guided Saren through it, and helped her onto a stool by the till. I pulled my worn black jacket off the peg and wrapped her in it like a child. God, what did they do to you? They don't pay me, she sniffed and wiped her nose on her wrist. For two weeks, Crispy didn't pay me at all, and the landlord threw me out. Have you been living rough since... Saturday, yeah. I got this dress. She scrunched two handfuls of the skirt. This city sickened me. I folded my arms and glanced at the shelves. She needed a bath, and she needed a place to stay. I'll get you that cocoa, I said. At that moment, the green linen strips hanging in the doorway whisked aside, and Dotterell bustled through from the passage. He looked over his glasses at the girl. Well, well. What in the name of pathos do we have here? This is Saren, sir, I said. Your partner in grime? <laughs> Saren stared at him. I explained everything, omitting, of course, my drug dealing, while giving Saren a warning glance, and ended lamely by saying, I'm just going to get her some cocoa. Cocoa? An excellent idea. And plenty of water and a nip of brandy. And then we shall have breakfast. Do you have a hangover, Miss Saren? He added something kindly in a way, and, and she brightened up and replied. Her tears had cleared white patches around her eyes, and she looked like a reject doll. Light the fire and run the bath, he said to me. Yes, sir. Then come back and man the shop. This doesn't entail a day off, you know. Young lady, if you don't mind wearing a shirt and trousers until you can buy some clothes. I don't have any money, she said. Well, that just depends whether you can help run a shop. Her eyes shone. Do you mean... Yes, yes. Well, we shall see. He turned and started taking down jars for me to make the day's pastilles. When one is caught in a tempest, it is important to steer the ship, is it not? There's no point bewailing life's vicissitudes when they rise up, 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 as well as down. And you, young lady, are on the up. Do you know of the Wheel of Fortune? It is always spinning. You can climb it to the top, but those on the top have to be careful, because it can carry them swiftly down again, and serve them right. If you languish at the bottom, bear in mind that you can rise to the heights. In a city like this, you need a firm place to set your foot. She has a voice like a nightingale, I said, and blushed. Don't know where that came from. Jant, kitchen? Yes, sir. I slipped through the wax green linen strips. As I coaxed the stove to life and warmed the tiny pan full of milk until it frothed, I was kicking myself for saying such a weird thing. But it seemed to have affected the best introduction for talking and snatches of laughter came through from the shop, and when I brought the cocoa in on a tray, 
I saw that both the stage grin and the blank stare had gone from Saren's eyes. Dotterell had managed to make her smile through her tears. After breakfast, I showed her how to make pastilles. She was wearing one of my shirts, tied with a scarf round her little urchin waist. We'd taken menthol, sugar syrup, essence of peppermint, and a little licorice, and stirred it around in a mason bowl. I folded the mixture over onto itself, and it went quite stiff. This is the good bit. I tipped the ball of candy out onto the clean work surface and rolled it into a sausage. It was transparent and marbled through with the black streaks of licorice. I let Saren pick it up and place it on the pill press, which is a ridged brass plate. A similar plate went on top, squashing the mixture. Then, with a quick motion, I whipped it across and rolled the mixture into little balls of satisfyingly equal size. Cough drops, I said. They set within the hour, and then they go in one of these tins. You have to keep the flies off them. I see, said Saren. What about scolopendium? That's proper chemistry, not cooking. Show me how to make it. No, it's the hardest drug there is. But she'd seen my glance to the distilling apparatus on its mahogany-topped table alongside the wall. Do you use that? Don't get involved. Everyone says you deal it. Vance said you're in with the wheel gang, and you give them scolopendium, and it's the best in the city. I'm not in any gang. But you sell them cat. Yes. Cool. I shrugged and began to measure warm sugar syrup for the next batch. Selling drugs wasn't cool. I'd only wanted a little money to see out my apprenticeship. But the wheel was like a whirlpool, and every night sucked me further in. You want to dive straight into danger and drown, I said. You can sing, and you can dance. Stick to that. At the Campion? It's not serious acting. It's like a sideshow at a whorehouse. I could be Atta and the Mayor of Dew if they'd let me. Come on, I said. Six drops of licorice. I packed medicines with Saren all day while the city's shadows lengthened. The cat stole in and leapt on the counter and was shooed out again. I sold two ounces of clove oil for toothache, chamomile for stomach gripes, and a dose of pennyroyal for carelessness all decanted into stoppered flasks and carefully labeled. Outside, the blue sky gave way to mare's tails, then thick cloud. A cold front battered in off the estuary, and the temperature began to drop. It was colder still when we finished our meal and Dotterell retired to bed. Saren followed to sleep in the box room, but my day was just beginning. I left the shop and walked out of Galt District toward the docks. The Morin Canal strides in there to meet the slovenly river at the basin full of barges. By day, it's busy with the trade and shipment of all sorts of goods. Now, at nearly ten o'clock, it was deserted, except for a dull glow and rowdy conversation spilling from the docker's Kentledge arms. All was silent as I followed the towpath below blind mill buildings and warehouses, deeper into the docks. Last on the wharf, by the mighty canal lock, the fulling mill's barred windows were as lightless as the cold expanse of estuary. Its great hammers that beat wool and weave into fine cloth were stilled for the night, and the enormous water wheel that drove it stood motionless. It hung above its reflection, seen now and then on the murky water, when a few spare lights from the road picked out the ripples in black and white. On the six spokes of the water wheel, the wheel gang had nailed another of their victims. The body of a teenager hung there, arms and legs outstretched, head dangling. 
Six-inch nails through his wrists and ankles held each limb to a different spoke. His blood had drained straight down, staining his jacket and the wheel's enormous timbers. Then they had used him for crossbow practice. I passed with a shudder. The warehouse at the end of the quay looked terribly lonely. I slipped inside and found myself surrounded by tall shapes, neat piles of barrels that reached up to the corrugated iron roof. There were sacks of barley, crates of candles, bolts of cloth. I walked between them like a thief. In the middle of the warehouse, various members of the wheel gang were lounging around on wool sacks. They had piled hundreds of these sacks into the shape of a tall throne, and high up on it, looking down on us all, sat a young man in an exquisitely tailored gray silk suit. "'You're late,' said Felicita. He reposed with his chin on one hand, the other hand dangling. He was adorned with the most expensive makeup and fine gold jewelry, his long hair combed down straight. Deborah and Vance stopped playing poker and watched. "'You got the drugs?' he asked. "'Have you got the money?' "'Just give me the damn file!' He slipped lightly down and landed in front of me. I took the file from my pocket and gave it to him. At once he flipped its cap, poured it into a glass of brandy ready on the table, and drank it down straight. Then eyelids flicked over wide-pupiled eyes. He caught a breath and looked at me shrewdly. "'Your payment is protection,' he said. "'What do you mean?' "'We caught two of the Bowyer's gang hanging around your shop, didn't we, Vance?' "'Yeah.' They won't bother you again. Was that the one outside on the wheel? Yes, said Felicita. What about the other one? He beckoned to me and we went outside. At the edge of the lock he rested his arms on the railing and gazed down at the black water. Vance, the docker, spun an iron wheel and the water level began to fall. The water drained away and revealed a metal ladder bolted to the slimy wall. Tied to the ladder and drooping away from it was a pale and waterlogged corpse. Oh, God, I said, oh, God. Felicita leant his head on my shoulder. I could see the powder particles of his eyeshadow and smelled his brandy breath. Stay, my dear, he murmured. Stay the night. He steered me back into the warehouse. Vance pressed a glass of brandy into my hand. Deborah involved me in a game of cards and I stayed. I was asleep, lying on the firmly filled wool sacks below the throne. The last candles in a stolen crystal chandelier that hung from the airy warehouse beams had failed, and all was dark. I was woken abruptly by an urgent hiss and a hand on my shoulder. Felicita. What? I asked, shrinking from his touch. Shh! He said. Get up! What the fuck was going on? I thought that perhaps the bowyers were about to attack, but lamplight leaking in from the docks illuminated an excited smile on Felicita's face, far from the usual sardonic expression he affected to match his expensive clothes. He walked towards me and I backed off, over the straw-strewn floor, until I walked into the chair in which Vance had been sitting, its cold metal pressed against the back of my legs. Felicita giggled, shaking his hair that was dyed in stripes for God's sake. It reached to his shoulders and flowed into his black coat, so he seemed featureless, a strip of darkness sliced from the night. He moved with a woman's delicacy. Did it better than a woman, more like a cat. Vance stepped out from behind a pile of barrels and grabbed me with a hand on each bicep. 
I struggled to pull away, but I had no chance. The greasy-haired bodybuilder tapped me on the shoulders, and I sat down on the chair. He began to pull a length of cord from his pocket. Felicita watched with his head on one side. Why are you looking at the door, Jant? Even you can't move that fast. What are you doing? Tut, tut. If you're going to sound so terrified, you should shut up. Vance looped the cord around my wrists, then pulled it appallingly tight across the back of the chair. I began to lose feeling in my fingertips. Aren't you on our side? I appealed. Yeah, well, if I wasn't, you didn't put up much of a struggle. He tied my legs to the legs of the chair, wrought iron against my shins and impossible for me to lift. Everybody in the wheel has this done, said Felicitas slowly. You want to belong to our gang, don't you? You want to be one of us. He brushed past me as he stood up, and I felt his erection hard in the front of his trousers. Over the last year, I had often glimpsed our symbol on Vance's shoulder, and I'd watched him carve it on Deborah's arm when she joined us. But I'd always hoped the ritual would pass me by. Everyone has to witness it, I tried to stay calm. You said so. You said we do scarifications in the Kentledge, in the beer garden. Tonight it's just you and me. He pulled the sheath off the blade. You never cut lace, I said desperately. Is that because you love her? A pained expression crossed his face. He poked the knife under my chin and lifted it so I had to meet his gaze. Well, I would fuck lace. I'd be thinking of you. He stepped back and began to slit my sleeve carefully. My adrenaline was hiking up while he opened a bottle, dripped disinfectant onto a pad of lint and rubbed it over the blade. The light from his lantern gleamed along its edge. I was high on the peak of anticipation, teetering with the void before me. I knew if I tensed myself the agony would be worse. I was rigid with fear. You goat fucker! I spat and scree. Keep talking. I love it when you speak foreign. He rolled back his cuffs and spread his hands like an artist contemplating a canvas. He pressed the tip of the knife against my skin, which dented, and the knife sank deep. I swear the first cut went straight to the bone. He put all his weight against the blade and dragged it through the skin and muscle with a butcher's precision. I struggled, I pulled away. The line he was cutting curved and he cried out in frustration. He seized my shoulder and held it still. He drew the circle deep into my flesh with a knife. He lifted out the blade. Then began the first spoke. I clamped my mouth shut and never made a sound. I wouldn't give him the pleasure. I stared straight ahead into the warehouse. Three lines made six spokes. On the second line, my vision went dark around the edges. Blue spots, then unfocused black patches clouded it. I couldn't breathe enough oxygen. I dropped my chin to my chest. I could hear blood pattering off my arm, dripping off his hands. Felicita hummed to himself and started the third line. I fainted. At length, I became aware of him slapping my face. My arm and my whole side were searing pain. He cut the cords because the blood had soaked the knots too tight to undo. I fell out of the chair onto my hands and knees and rested my forehead on the floorboards. Blood was running in rivers down my arm, over my wrist, and drying stickily on the floor. 
Felicita had never scarred any other gang member this deeply. Every spoke was a punishment for a time I'd rebuffed his advances. He stepped back and admired his handiwork, and slipped behind me. I felt him grope my arse and his hand sank into the crack. At the same time, he reached around and deftly undid my belt buckle. In a trice, I was up and glaring at him, squeezing my shoulder. Cool it, he said. He pointed to the disinfectant and I picked up the pad and pressed it against the cuts, trying to staunch the flow. Get away from me, I slurred. Vance yelled at Felicita. You go too far. Everyone has it done. You did. Not that deep. I want to know what Jant will do in return, he said softly. I tried a step and the warehouse spun. I fell to one knee again and my hand went automatically to my stiletto knife tucked in the top of my boot. But when I looked up, he was again pointing his dagger at me and smirking. Fuck off, Felicita. Ooh, stop giving me ideas. You are so very young and so very pretty. I knelt and concentrated on the pain, thinking I was about to die of it, or of blood loss, and I couldn't bring myself to move for what seemed like hours. He nudged me with his boot toe. Get up, Jant. Can't. You're a drug dealer, aren't you? Go and deal yourself some drugs. Roll up your sleeve and shoot some of that stuff you sell me. Hook yourself up with a dose of cat. I know it takes all the pain away. Felicita Averfalconet, you are living on borrowed time. Promises, promises. He stepped back and bowed, beckoned to Vance, and they walked off without another word. I stood up, carefully, hunched over my pain, holding my arm, and the warehouse was reeling as I made my way across it. As I left the quayside, a figure began to trail after me, scarcely distinguishable in that stinking canal night. Oh, let it. I was thanking God silently that the distance was not too far. Dripping blood all the way, I staggered down the underpass that led beneath the watermill's conduit. It was desolate and stank of piss. Concrete stalactites hung from seeping cracks in the ceiling, and muddy footprints streaked the tiles. I hurried through as quickly as I could. At the crossroads by the Morin Bridge, street lamps cast my shadow long across the road. Two rats were fighting in the gutter. They snapped at each other like stunted dogs. I limped past them and painfully made my way from the docklands back to Galt. Through the 4 a.m. landscape of twisted roofs and slippery pavements bordered with open drains while the amber moon's sick light laughed at me. I crossed over into Cinder Street, off the cobbles onto the wet brown pavement, past the Campion Playhouse, alongside its iron railings. I reached the chemist's shop, its shutters fastened for the night, and sighed with relief. I fumbled with the key, shouldered the door wide, and stumbled inside. I kicked the door closed and made my way by a combination of touch and memory, across to the counter and ducked underneath. The counter stood as an ebony barricade between the shelves and outside, the street still visible through the pane in the door. I lit a candle one-handedly and searched the shelves, which were lined with boxes and jars full of potions and pills. Painkiller, I was thinking. Felicity was right the cat will work. That's what the addicts tell me it's like. The ones I sell it to, they care for nothing else.
I knocked over a couple of little bottles, spilling some silver liquid and the dregs of red powder from another, swearing loudly. I didn't expect Dotterell to be awake yet. He was far too old and slept as if already dead. My moonlight customers and I were glad of that. I picked up the bottle against my chest, but didn't have the strength to open it. I sat down, panting, and eased the stiffening sleeve of my shirt away from the network of cuts on my shoulder. This action made the bleeding start again. I promise I'll kill that bastard. I smashed the neck off the bottle on the countertop, poured the drug into a beaker, and drank it. The pain disappeared. It didn't ebb or dull, just snuffed out like an extinguished candle. I pawed my way through the shop, under the desk again, and unlocked the door that led down to the cellar, where I slept on a shelf. I made no attempt to bandage my arm. I didn't care for it at all. I even smiled, thinking how good this stuff was. And how perhaps the addicts I sold it to were correct. All their lax philosophy, all their contorted sense of time. Hours wore on and fever set in. When the pain began to pierce the shell of the scolopendium I'd drunk, I sipped more. Lay on my impossible bed with a beaker clutched in one hand and listened to my own voice whispering. Good, isn't it? said a voice in the doorway. That feline silhouette lounging against the doorframe, its long, stripy hair now scraped back in a ponytail. It's the best drug in the world. Felicita? Here? Or was it a hallucination? Felicita, I breathed. Did you trail me as well? As well? As well as who? My mouth was dry and I gasped. The bulliers followed me here, though... No, my love, I'm the one that was following you. Put a guard on your shop, you'll be safe. I squeezed my eyes shut in frustration and tears forced out the corners. He swayed up to stand beside me. You have such an interesting establishment. It belongs to us now, and so do you. Now, we view the world in the same way. We should understand each other. Is there anything... at all... I can do for you? Take me to the hospital, bitch. He raised an eyebrow and laid his hand on my thigh. In a while... A movement in the corridor made us both start. Saren rushed into the room, leveling Dotterell's crossbow directly at Felicita. "'Who the hell are you?' she snapped. Felicita backed off at the sight of the gleaming bolt, but then he shook himself and assumed an air of smoothness. "'Gent, you didn't tell me you had a girlfriend.' "'Who are you?' yelled Saren. "'She must be quite something to have seduced our gent.' Saren closed her finger on the trigger. To her eyes, he was one of the men who had made her life a misery. She meant it. I'm the governor's son, he said quickly. What? Felix, the son of Callus Ava Falconet, governor of Hasselith? Saren glanced madly from him to me, behind the crossbow that was far too big for her. From the palace? she said. Just shoot him, I said. Such hospitality, I- Out! She kept him at crossbow point as he walked around her. He winked at me as he left, and she followed him out. 
I heard the shop door bang. In a second she was back, shaking with relief and dangling the crossbow. He's gone. For now. God, what happened to you? This is what it means to join the wheel gang, I said through my fever. She bent close and helped me lift my fingers away from my wounded shoulder. He cut me, I said. It needs dressing. Show me how. She helped me up to the shop and I sat on a stool while she cleaned my wound and bandaged it carefully. The sky was brightening from misty gray to a deeper blue every minute and a soft, peaceful dawn trailed into this side of Hesela. In the shade of the shop, Saren traced with her finger the lines of blood that were starting to show through my bandage. Her touch was so light and caring. She whispered, A circle with spokes. It's the Wheel of Fortune. We're at the bottom now, so the wheel will raise us up, won't it? Out of the dregs? Yes. A wheel takes more effort to push upwards than it does to spin downward. I was suddenly determined. I would set my shoulders against the Wheel of Fortune and shove. We'll get out of this terrible city, I said. Saren hugged me tight and kissed me. It was the first time I'd ever been kissed. An awed awakening broke upon me. She really cared. I drew close to her with an abrupt, fierce love. We will escape, I promised. The Wheel of Fortune will turn for us. We'll turn it. Such an intense, powerful, and unnerving story. Take heed, fablers. Steph notes that she is expanding this story into a novel, and that she's halfway through the next book in her castle sequence, with more to come. And now for something a little lighter, or at least slightly less dark. Our next story is Crabapple by Patrick Samphire, read by Alex Weinler. Patrick Samphire drinks green tea, designs cool websites and book covers, and writes thrilling books and magical stories. His first novel, Secrets of the Dragon Tomb, will be published by Henry Holt Macmillan in January 2016. He lives with his wife, fellow writer Stephanie Burgess, their two sons and their border collie in Wales. To find out more, visit his website. The link is in the show notes. Alex Weinler writes short fiction for magazines and podcasts, a long-time sofanaut, he's finally got up the courage to narrate. He lives in Fulburn, England, in a cottage that consumes bulbs of unusual wattage. He can be found on Twitter as at Alex Weinler. And here we have it. Crabapple by Patrick Samphire. I saw her first the day I found Dad on the kitchen floor. The new girl, the wild girl. At first I thought Dad had been drinking again. There were beer cans scattered across the floor. But the cans were still full, and I couldn't smell alcohol. There was something strange about the way Dad was lying. He was too still. His stick-thin arms and legs were sprawled loosely across the tiles. I thought for a moment he was dead. 
He was still breathing, though, a wheezy, tight sound as though a plastic whistle was stuck in his throat. He didn't wake when I shook him. I'd begun taking first aid classes at school when Dad started losing weight and coughing. There was no one else at home to help, but they had never shown us how to deal with this. I put him in the recovery position and called an ambulance. The girl was there when I went outside to wait for the ambulance. She was squatted on our garden wall like a wild-haired monkey. She had on a dirty white T-shirt and shorts that showed scratched legs. I guess she was about fourteen, same age as me. Her eyes were as brown as oak, and her cheeks were freckled and sunburnt. There were leaves in her tangled hair. What's your name? She said. You. What's your name? Josh. I said. Joshua. She laughed. Stupid name. She winked down at me. Her grin was as wide as her face. Then she leapt from the wall and dashed away up the hill. Her wild hair streaming behind her like a comet's tail. I watched her disappear. In the distance, I heard the ambulance siren approaching. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You want to see something? The wild girl leaned against the school lockers. She was wearing school uniform without the tie, but she'd got mud in her blouse already, and her hair was the same mess. I'd spent most of the night at the hospital by Dad's bed, waiting for him to wake up. He hadn't. No, I said. You want to know my name? No. She shoved her sunburnt face close to mine. Her brown eyes glittered. I don't care, stupid boy. She laughed and spun down the corridor, arms outstretched. Stupid, 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 she shouted as she span. My face turned red. The door to the staff room burst open, and Mrs. Wilson strode out, her thick skirt slapping like a whip against her legs. What is going on? Come back here! The wild girl looked back. Screw you! 
Then she ran again. Mrs. Wilson pushed back her glasses. Her lips were tight. Little madam, she said. She glared at me as though I was to blame. She's got the devil in her, that one. She'll be nothing but trouble. You mark my words, Josh. Nothing but trouble. He's awake, the nurse said. She led me into Dad's room. He was sunk into the stiff white sheets like a balloon with half its air let out. There was a tube running up his nose and another leading to his arm from a bag of clear liquid hooked on a stand. He turned his head, blinking. Josh. His voice was hoarse, like he'd been shouting. How are you doing, Dad? I tried to stop my voice shaking. I didn't want to seem like a kid. Been better, been worse. He worked his lips as though his mouth was dry. See, the old devil's put his hand in my chest, lad. Left a bit of a gift for me. He coughed. His thin chest shuddered. He turned and spat into a metal bowl by his bed. The spit was thick and threaded with blood. He gave me a painful grin. Want to hear a name for the devil they never taught you at Sunday school, lad? Forty a day. Good, eh? He laughed. It was painful, breathless sound. Oh, forty a day will get you every time. I tried to smile, but couldn't. He looked shriveled away, eaten from inside. His cheeks were caved in, his skin almost yellow and sagging against his bones. His eyes bloodshot and too big for his face. He wasn't my dad. It was his reflection in a dead mirror, a body from the desert. Want to see my x-rays, he said. Okay, I said. End of the bed, blue folder. I pulled them out and held them up to the window. I could see his ribs and spine as clear white. Two large grey shapes behind the ribs must have been his lungs. What's this? I pointed at a black lump almost as large as one of Dad's fists in the bottom of the right lung. Apple. Swallowed an apple. Hey, hey. He coughed again. I'm tired, lad. Bloody tired. You wouldn't think so after all that sleep. His eyes fluttered shut. He sighed and his body relaxed on the bed. I stood over him, staring down at that exhausted face. I wondered how long he'd been so tired. I hadn't noticed. Too busy rushing around. I swallowed to stop a sob. He looked twenty years older than I remembered. For a moment his eyelids popped open again. Don't let your mum worry, eh? He croaked. No, Dad, I said. Mum had been dead since I was five. Aunt Chris came to stay. To look after me, she said. She was waiting on the porch when I got home. She had bundled Dad's beer cans into a bin bag and left it outside for the dustman. She had emptied his ashtrays and put them in a cupboard, right on the top shelf. She threw away all the old magazines and newspapers. Then she started scrubbing, as though she wanted to scrub away every trace of Dad. I went up to my room. Something woke me in the night. The moon was heavy through the trees at the end of the garden. Somewhere in the dark an owl hooted, a forlorn lost sound. I wondered if that had been what had woken me. Then I heard a scratching just below the window. My heart started to thump. A bird, maybe, or even a mouse. That would be it. My hands bunched into fists around the sheets. I closed my eyes. 
I wasn't a kid anymore to be frightened by my imagination. When I opened my eyes, there was a face at the window. I nearly screamed. It was pressed up close, pale but shadowed with the moon behind it. I took a deep breath. The face moved, and I saw the mass of tangled hair. The wild girl pulled herself up onto my window sill and crouched there, staring in. Open the window, she mouthed. Wrapping my sheet around me, I stood and hurried over. What do you want? Open the window. I pulled it up, letting the cool night air in. The girl hopped inside. Jeez, you're hard to wake. It's the middle of the night. She gave me a wide grin. You want to see something? What? You have to come and see. I glanced at the clock. It was two o'clock. I'd have to be up for school in five hours. Good, she said before I could answer. I'll meet you downstairs. Get dressed. She giggled. You look stupid in that sheet. Then she clambered back out onto the window sill. She lowered herself so she was dangling by her hands, then looked at me with that wild face. You want to know my name? No, I said. It's Emma. Do you like it? It's okay. Good. She dropped, and I heard a soft thud from the ground below. I saw her dart around the side of the house. I thought about going back to bed, but I just had this feeling that she'd be climbing back up to my window if I did. I didn't even think she would care if she woke Aunt Chris. She didn't seem to care about anything. You should cry, you know, or scream, or throw something. She picked up a rock and flung it toward the rooftops below. Like that, let yourself go. We were climbing Braddock Hill, which rose sharply between the scattered houses on my side of the hill and the sprawling, dirty town on the other. It was cold out, and the sky was clear. Why, I said. Because of your dad. You can't deal with anything while you're all sewn up like a pillow. You need to escape. Let your feathers fly around the room, and then you can handle anything. You can handle anything, can you? I said. She jumped in the air, twirling as she did so. Anything, she laughed. It was a feral sound, like a fox barking in the darkness. We topped the hill and began to descend. The ground flattened to the left, and Emma led me that way into the trees. I hung back for a moment. It was dark in there. I wasn't so sure this was a good idea anymore. Emma looked back. Scared, Josh? You a stupid, scared little boy? No, I said, and followed her in. There had been an orchard here once, but it had long been abandoned. Hawthorn and ash had sprung up between the apple trees, and tangles of bramble rose in hillocks between the trunks. Right in the centre, larger than any of the other trees, stood a spreading crab-apple tree. Nothing grew beneath its branches save a layer of thick moss. Emma stopped beneath it. It's a tree, I said. Big deal. She leaned back against the bark. Come closer. She crooked a finger and stared up at me through her eyelashes. Her sweater was tight against her chest. She winked. My heart trembled. My pulse fluttered loudly in my ears. My lips were dry. She pushed herself away again with a squawk of laughter. Just wait, she said, and watch. What? There. She pointed to halfway up the trunk of the massive tree, 
and for a moment I couldn't see what she was pointing at. Then I saw it. The bark of the tree was pulsing, as though there was a slow heart beneath it, or a giant insect trapped in syrup. The pulses grew, the branches shuddered. Slowly, something pulled itself from the tree. The bark stretched like toffee, clinging to the creature that was emerging, and then finally snapping back. I thought of a butterfly emerging from its cocoon, but this was no butterfly. It was shaped almost like a man, but it wasn't a man. It was wrong. Its fingers were as long as my forearm. From its head and its elbows and its knees grew twisted twigs. Its skin was as rutted as bark, but as silver as the moon. Its teeth, when it spread its mouth wide open, were as sharp as pins. Its eyes were bright yellow. I saw claws curling from its fingers and toes. It clung to the tree, and then slowly turned, so that its head was pointing downwards, and began to descend. It moved with the reaching slowness of a stick insect. It would take forever to reach the ground, I thought. But even as I thought that, in a move, in a rush, I could hardly follow, and it was standing beneath the crabapple tree, not a dozen steps away from us. My breath turned to tar in my mouth. The creature was male. I could see that now. He wore no clothes. Moonlight gathered around him like cold mist. He was tall, towering above me. I wanted to reach out and touch him. He was beautiful. He was the way I thought an angel should look. Glorious, alien and terrible. I was cold. My legs shook. The hair on my arms and neck stood painfully on end. I thought he would drown me in his radiant, ugly beauty. I was dark and insignificant before him. He sucked up my thoughts, leaving my head empty. I was inadequate, pathetic, scared. Through a dry mouth I said, Who, who are you? He was right in front of me. He reached a long, twisted hand towards me, brushed sharp fingers that could slice skin across my face. Suddenly, all I wanted to do was run. Crab, he said. They call me Crab. He stepped back, and Emma was beside him, grinning her wild grin at me. Isn't he beautiful? His cruel hand smoothed over her hair, her face, her neck, her shoulders. I backed away. She leaned against him, a little scrap of wildness against his terrible form. I turned and ran. Behind me, I heard her voice cry out, Josh, come back! But I didn't. I just kept on running. Dad was asleep when I visited during the next two days. You mustn't disturb him, the nurse said. He needs all the strength he can get. So I sat beside him, holding his hand, gazing at his wasted body and his face that was so tired it looked bruised. We used to play football in the park. If I scored a goal, he would throw me over his shoulder like a fireman and go whooping down the pitch and dump me through the other goal. I reckoned I could pick him up with one hand now. He looked so frail. His breathing was a thin wheeze, in and out, in and out, each breath creasing his face. Once I broke down and sobbed on his chest, but he just kept wheezing in, wheezing out, 
his skin was dry as a winter leaf. On the third day, he was awake, propped up on his pillows. He smiled at me when I came in. Been waiting for you, lad, he said, well past my bedtime. He gasped a chuckle. The effort exhausted him. His eyelids fluttered almost shut, but he forced them open again. Don't let me fall asleep. How you feeling, Dad? Been better, been worse. I sat beside him. Brought you some cards? I set them out on the table. Nice, he said. Lad, I got my biopsy results today. What's a biopsy? He screwed up his old face. They stuck this tube in my nose, all the way down into my lungs, and scooped out a bit of that apple I swallowed. He coughed. Tested it. He reached out to me with a frail hand and laid it over mine. His fingers curled around me. No surprise, he said, looking at me. It's cancer. My hand tightened and winced. Sorry, I said. But I croaked so much it hardly came out. They're going to operate, Dad said. Take that whole side of the lung. Probably do some other stuff too. Chemotherapy or radiation therapy. We haven't decided yet. I couldn't move. My whole body was shaking. I'm sorry, he said. And as he did, I began to cry, big painful sobs that shook the chair in his bed. He waited until I'd finished, and then pulled my hand closer. Listen, lad, I've been wanting to say this. The drink, see, it took the pain away. I just thought I was getting old. I didn't want to think it was this, so I got drunk and tried to ignore it. I'm sorry. His breath had become gasps. He was sweating from his forehead. His eyes were bloodshot and tinted yellow with exhaustion. Go to sleep, Dad, I said, and he did. I hadn't seen Emma at school during those three days, but the day after she was there, leaning against the lockers again, grinning at me. Where are you going, she said. Her hair was more of a mess than ever. It was full of leaves. I shuddered when I thought about where they might have come from. That tree. That creature in it. I tried to tell myself it was a nightmare, but I knew it wasn't. My shoes had been muddy when I'd got back, and there had been dried leaves on my bedroom floor near the window. First aid class, I said, but I didn't move, just stood there and stared at her. Skip it, she said. I shrugged. Okay. There didn't seem much point any more, not unless they could teach me a cure for cancer. I had no time for bandages and mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. It was lunchtime. The corridors were heaving, but no one was taking any notice of us. I grabbed Emma's arm as we let ourselves be swept along towards the lunch hall. What is he? I whispered. Crab. What is he? He's a Dane, she said. Like from Denmark. She rolled her eyes, and her mouth turned down. She almost hissed in my face. No, not like from Denmark, stupid, ugly, stupid boy. No, the Danes, like in the fates, the people of peace, the Fane, the Pharisees. She lowered her voice. The Fay. You mean f She yanked my arm. Don't say it. It's bad luck to say that name. She hunched her thin shoulders. Bad luck. That's ridiculous, I said, but my skin wanted to shiver. 
Oh, yeah, she said. So what is he, then? I shook my head. He likes you, she said. He wants you. I squinted at her. What does that mean? She bit her lip. For an instant, I thought she looked scared. I don't know, she said. Then she stared defiantly at me again. I don't care. We came out into the dining room. Mr. Miller and Mrs. Wilson were on duty. Mrs. Wilson glared at us. I turned away, but Emma stuck out her tongue. Mrs. Wilson went stiff and her neck reddened. Why did you do that? I whispered. Emma shrugged. Why not? Did you see the look she gave us? She can't stand me. Let's get something to eat, I said. Emma touched my hand. I glanced at her. She looked nervous. There was a line of sweat above her lip, and her hand was trembling. She licked her lip. I brought you something to eat. She held out her hand. It's an apple, she said. It was tiny and too green. I took it from her hand. It's okay, she said. It tastes fine. Eat it. She didn't meet my eyes. Slowly, watching her all the time, I brought it up to my mouth. Someone put a hand on my arm. Don't eat that. I looked up. Mr. Miller was standing in front of me. That's not a real apple, he said. It's a crab apple. It's a nasty, bitter, sour thing. I looked at Emma. She just stared at her shoes. Why did you give him that, Emma? Mr. Miller said softly. Because she's an evil little cow, Mrs. Wilson said from behind us. Emma's head jerked up. You're the evil cow, she shouted at Mrs. Wilson. You're the evil, fat, ugly, stupid cow. You! Emma shoved past us, out into the middle of the hall. Her body was shaking like a branch in a storm. Her arms windmilled madly around, sending plates and trays cascading onto the floor. All the while, she kept up an inhuman shriek. In the middle of it all, her eyes fixed on mine, and I could have sworn they were no longer wood-brown, but yellow, a burning yellow. I found her later in the schoolyard, back pressed up against the concrete wall of the science block. She was staring up at the thick woods that cloaked Braddock Hill. She'd been crying. I'm sorry, she said. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do any of that. It's just... just... just what? I said. She turned on me, her eyes narrowed to slits. Nothing. It's nothing. Dull, stupid, ugly boy. Go away. Go away. She leapt to her feet and ran away. Mrs. Tully from school says you've got a new friend, Dad said. What's her name? Emma. What's she like, eh? He winked. Wild, I said, sighing. Wild, eh? He laughed his breathless laugh. Sunday afternoon, and dying summer had decided to throw up one final wonderful hot day. The air was still and clean, the sky a ferocious blue. Emma was waiting at the garden gate. She wore jeans and a light long-sleeved T-shirt. Want to walk? she said. Not to the orchard, I said. No. She shivered as though a spider was crawling up her back. Not to the orchard. We climbed the path that led around the other side of Braddock Hill. The Somerset levels were laid out before us. 
lush green and gently rumpled. Hundreds of irregularly sized fields divided by head-high hawthorn and blackthorn hedges studded with ash, oak and hazel, stretched to the rise of the Mendip hills in the distance. Sunlight glittered from the streams and the drainage ditches, like trails of mercury laid on green felt. Grey stone farmhouses were dotted here and there. Once, every one of them would have had an orchard. Not any more. Walked close, almost touching, arms brushing once or twice. Is your dad going to die? Emma said. My throat turned to a miserable stone. Maybe, I guess. Oh, she stared into my eyes. Hers were wide and that deep swallowing brown. I don't think I'll die, she said. I could hardly hear her voice. But, but I think it might be worse. I touched her shoulder. I want to help you, I said, if I can. She shook her head. You can't, she whispered. He's inside me. I could try, if you told me how. I thought she might cry. Let's get out of the sun. It's too bright. She pointed to a stand of trees. We sat in the shade, our backs against a tall oak, sharing the Pepsi and Mars bar she'd brought with her. I could hear insects buzzing, but they left us alone. The air was so clear it might not even have been there. I glanced over at Emma. She was staring far over the levels, watching something I couldn't see. Her face was peaceful, relaxed. She had a twig sticking out of her hair. I reached up and pulled to get it out. It snapped off. Her head jerked forward and she screamed. Sap swelled up in the broken twig and a single drop of blood. She turned on me, jumping to her feet. Her brown eyes had turned yellow. Her face was twisted. I scrambled to my feet too. I grabbed her arm and pulled up the sleeve. The skin below was wrinkled, hard and silvery. I felt sweat under my collar, on my hands. You're becoming like him, like Crab, I shouted. Aren't you? Aren't you? She swung for me. Fingernails like claws scraped along my arms. I jumped back. Keep away from me, Josh. Keep away. She turned and was gone into the trees. I didn't see her again until the end of the month. Dad came home for a couple of weeks. His operation wasn't scheduled for three months, and the hospital said he was strong enough to be discharged. He didn't look like it. His skin was pallid and unhealthy. I could see his veins through it. He couldn't walk more than about four steps without panting. Aunt Chris cut her way through the jungle that was the back garden, uprooting weeds, cutting back plants, while Dad sat and glowered from the window. Thursday evening, at the end of Dad's second week home, and he had to go back in for tests. Aunt Chris went with him. I sat at home by the phone, waiting for one of them to call. At ten, the phone went. It was Aunt Chris. Listen, Joshua, she said. We're staying overnight. I heard her voice tremble. They, they say the cancer has begun to metastasize. It's begun to spread. They're going to operate tomorrow at two. I want to come in, I said. Tomorrow, she said. He's got to sleep now. I stood and went to the window and stared across the moonlit garden. 
took me several minutes to notice the shape at the end of the garden, because it didn't move. But then I saw it for what it was, a person, standing rigid, half hidden by shadows. I went to the door and opened it, stepped out. Her head snapped around. It was Emma. I'd known it would be. Stay away from me, Josh, she hissed, and turned and ran. This time I wasn't going to let her run away. I followed her. She ran fast, keeping to the shadows of the side of the road, but I knew where she was going. To the orchard. To Crab. I dashed after her. I was out of breath by the time I reached the orchard. My lungs were raw and my throat painful. I saw her standing beneath the crab apple tree, staring up. She turned, and in the moonlight I saw her clearly. Her fingers were too long. Twisted sticks poked from her head and elbows and knees. Her skin was silver, creased like the bark of a tree. Her eyes were burning yellow, bright in the darkness. Her teeth were pointed and sharp. Josh. Above her, the bark of the tree began to pulse and bulge. I ran towards her. She hissed and her razor-sharp claws darted up my throat. I threw myself back and she followed. There was nothing of Emma in those eyes. She swung again and I ducked, feeling the claws slice through my hair. I punched. My fist caught her jaw. She stumbled back. She blinked for a moment. Her eyes were brown again. I saw panic and fear in them. Let me help you, I shouted. Crab had freed one of his twisted limbs from the bark of the tree. His head was turning to peer down at us. Get us out of me, Josh, Emma whispered, her voice cracking. Get him out of me. She started to cough, great choking coughs that shook her whole body. Then her eyes turned yellow again. Before she could move, I darted behind her and grabbed her, my arms circling her body. Above us, Crab freed his last limb and began to descend. Emma's claws raked my arms. Blood trickled over my skin. I bunched one hand into a fist, crossed the other over it. Emma was struggling, lashing her twisted body to and fro, screaming, but still she was coughing, and still I held tight. A thud, and Crab landed in front of us. He rose, his radiance growing. For a moment I felt weak, scared, pathetic. His magnificence was a ton of sand pushing me down, burying me. My arms weakened, and I almost let go, but then I remembered Emma's frightened brown eyes, and I knew I wouldn't let him take her. Ignoring the pain and fear and weakness, I pushed my fist below her ribs, the way they'd shown us in the first aid class, and jerked it upwards in time with her cough. Her body convulsed and she choked, gasped. Something flew from her mouth. We collapsed forward together. Lying on the moss, still damp from her saliva, was a small green crab apple. I looked up. Crab was standing there above us. He no longer looked fearsome or terrible. He looked lonely. He looked like an old, old branch of a tree that had broken off and fallen. His yellow eyes gazed down at us. Then he turned and climbed back into his crab apple tree. I'll be honest with you, the doctor said, looking down at me over his little glasses. 
Your dad's got a 20% chance at most. We've got to get the whole cancer out in one go. Emma and I sat side by side. We had just seen Dad's trolley being pushed into the operating theatre. They had wheeled him away like they'd wheeled Mum away when I'd been five. She had never come back. The doctor gave us a nod and then disappeared through the door. My throat was hard. My teeth were clamped tight shut. I had to close my eyes to stop tears coming. Twenty percent, I whispered. That's no chance at all. He's going to die. I felt Emma reach for me and take my hand. She pushed something solid and round into it. I opened my eyes. It was a crab apple, whole, undamaged out of her. She was smiling a wild, free smile. I smiled back and clasped her hand. We sat, the crab apple held pressed between our palms, and waited for the doctors to come back out. Young adult fiction can be tricky, but Patrick has an obvious talent when it comes to getting inside the heads of kids and expressing their hopes and fears in a believable way. Children can be more resilient than we sometimes give them credit for, and Patrick does a unique job here of reminding us of that, with an amazing blend of fairy tale fantasy and real life conflicts. And that brings us to the end of another show. I must admit to feeling a touch of ennui when it comes to the format of our beloved Triple F. If any of you have any suggestions for the show, please do feel free to drop me a comment on the website. I would really appreciate your feedback. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. So there. As always, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The Triple F is a fan-run podcast. We don't make any money at this, but someone has to pay for the servers to store up all these hours of fantastic and amazing fiction. How about them apples, eh? Until next week, enjoy the apples and the beverages. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.